Hey, I'm Matthew Ma, host of the Truth About Real Estate podcast. And today we are talking with Timothy Lyons, the founder and managing partner of Cityside Capital, a real estate syndication and investment company that focuses on multifamily real estate. Tim is also a lieutenant in the New York City Fire Department, where he has served for about 17 years. And until recently, he also worked part-time as an emergency room nurse at a level one trauma center. Excited to talk with you, Tim. Glad to have you here. Yeah, likewise. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Yeah, so I wanted to talk to you more and learn about what you've been doing. You know, you've been uh, a lieutenant in the New York City Fire Department, and also you've been focusing on real estate investing. And you mentioned you started real estate about two years ago. Yes. So, um, well, just like you said, been a firefighter for you know nearly seventeen years. I used to work as an ER nurse in a level one trauma center. Uh, that was my side hustle for maybe eight nine years. And um, everything worked out for a while, um, but then I had three little girls. Now they're 11, 8, and 2. And, you know, I was spending a lot of time out of the house, and real estate was one of those things I always kind of wanted to get into. Not sure how to start getting into real estate. Uh, so I just dove in. Um, I dove in into a three-family uh, rental, um, cash flowed on day one. It gave me that uh, proof of concept that I was looking for, that my wife was kind of looking for, and... Uh, from there, we just kind of scaled into multifamily. Nice. And let's talk about that too. How did you get into the first deal? That's the hardest one. The first one is the hardest one, right? Whether you're doing mm -hmm. actively or passively, it's always the hardest thing to do. Um, so yeah, I mean, like I had, I had my reasons of why I wanted to do it. I had my, my focus. And I think that's really important for people to wrap their heads around. It sounds kind of foo-foo in the beginning. Uh, if you download any kind of course, they'll say, well, figure out your why, what's your focus. <laughs> and, you know, and it sounds a little bit like abstract, but it's really true. Like I needed to... I needed to find a way to separate myself uh, from, you know, spending time and trading that time for, for dollars. And, you know, nothing happens overnight, obviously, but real estate was always one of the things that kept on popping up as a potential source of income. And I had to figure that out. Right. So just like anything else in life, I had to get educated first. I didn't want to dive into anything. I'm a super conservative type of guy, especially with like money and investing and, and value. So, you know, I didn't want to, you know, mess up the Lions family, um, you know, fortune basically. Right. So I did what a lot of people do. And I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki. And yeah. as as cliche as that sounds, um, that really kind of turned on the lights and gave me some clarity on where to move next. And from that, I just started I started taking in an insane amount of content, whether it was audiobooks or podcasts or you know, just becoming a voracious reader. And, you know, what I found was that my journey is just like a lot of other people's journeys. And I had to basically align myself with people that have done the thing that I wanted to do and kind of rip off and duplicate, right? R&D. And so that's what I did. I read that book uh, July of 19. And by November of 19, I was closing on a three family, you know, rental property. And, you know, to me, having that conservative background, the three family made sense because I could still cash flow if I had one of those units. Well, I can still put it this way. I could I could still pay my bills, the PITI, the maintenance and stuff like that. If I had one of the units filled, the other two would provide the cash flow. So that felt safe to me versus, you know, buying a condo or a single family property or something like that. Very nice. And that's a really good point too. And a couple of things I want to talk about here. You know, I, I totally agree with you what you what you've been doing, what you're doing, because it's actually cool to see and hear this is the exact same thing I talk about too. Like, you know, reading Rich Data Portag is actually really good. I think people need to read it a couple of times to really digest it, not just gloss over it and really think about things. If you're a business builder, you're an entrepreneur and you want to build income active or passively, it's a good starting point to really dive deeper into building. And you mentioned being a vicarious learner and learning about, you know, like listening podcasts, watching YouTube videos, reading books. You're actually learning from the heart and soul of people who are talking about it. And that's the best way to learn. Like if I can't have a conversation with the CEO, but a CEO has a book, I can read the book, right? And basically I'm learning right directly from them. And you really can take that in deeply and use that knowledge from everyone with a grain of salt and build your own uh, legacy, right? So that's pretty cool how you did it. You read and you're learning and you're, you actually took action. And to take action from going from no property here to buying a you know multi-unit 
it's not that easy. And you did it within four to five months of actually saying, okay, I'm going to do this. And that's tough because like, okay, there's going to be a lot of challenges being your first property and getting actually getting into it and then figuring out what happens. But you, you took the liberty to understand the numbers up front and understand the PITI, understand that you're going to cash flow, what the cash flow really means and how one out of three units is actually going to provide that and then give you the cash flow after the first unit. That's great because now you're getting two units. You can even, even live in one of them and rent the other one out in cash flow. And that's great. Can you tell me more about that property? What kind of numbers were you looking at when you first bought it in 19? Yeah. So, I mean, I wouldn't use my original underwriting to purchase any more properties, <laughs> but um, <laughs> it got the job done in the beginning. But um, yeah, I mean, like, so, you know, we would cash flow anywhere from like, say, uh, over the life of that property. I owned it for just about two years, anywhere from 400 to maybe a thousand a month. And, you know, because there was different setbacks, like all, all of a sudden I needed a new hot water heater or now I needed to surf, you know, I put new siding and a new roof on the house <clears throat> and, um, you know, just little, little things here and there, you know, um, that would eat into the cash flow. But the, the bottom line was that it always cash flowed. There was no months where I was dipping into my own pocket. And that was huge for me to have that clarity and that confidence to say, all right, this works. You know, I did a little better on my taxes. I have cash flow. I have proof of concept. Um, you know, so it was a, a three-unit building. I had, you know, a tenant uh, on each floor with, um, it was three single moms and a couple of kids. And, you know, like I said, it was a 1920s built. So it hadn't had a lot of deferred maintenance. So I put the new siding on, put a new roof on, uh, did some other upgrades to the first floor unit upon takeover because the first floor uh, tenant moved out. So, you know, and I did a lot of it myself, you know, on the inside, on the exterior, I, I hired it out. Uh, hey, you're muted. Sorry about that. When, you, when, you're, when you're doing that, like yourself, you know, in the beginning, you know, I was very cost conscious, like how much does every little thing cost? And, you know, can I do it myself? And what I found now, you know, getting into the multifamily space uh, and realizing the power of, you know, leveraging other people and asking who and not how and, and how can you can do underwriting to account for all these things. You know, where is the highest and best use of like my time? Because at the time I did my three family, I was still a lieutenant in the New York City Fire Department. I was still an ER nurse at a level one trauma center. And I still had three little girls and a marriage, you know, um, yep. and, you know, um, kids sports teams to coach and whatnot. Uh, but now I was a landlord of a property and, you know, I remember my wife kind of joking with me. She was like, you know, I thought this was going to be like a passive income activity, you know, but yet you're, you know, down at the house, like painting or whatever. And, and you know, I mean, listen, it, it was awesome to have my wife as a, um, a partner in all this because although she wants nothing to do with the real estate, she was super supportive of me to have the time to mm -hmm. spend doing this stuff, you know. Um, but you know, during this period where I was, you know, kind of creating the cash flow, I was getting my proof of concept, my wife was getting it, and I was getting the real estate bug. I had really tuned out everything else. Like I wasn't listening to music anymore. I was like literally, if I had to go to the supermarket five minutes away, I would take in five minutes of a podcast or an audiobook or you know, some sort of content, you know, while I was, you know, shopping uh or driving to the supermarket and I kept on hearing really, really valuable stories about other people who were cops or firefighters or teachers or accountants or doctors, you know, you name it. And they have a podcast out there about somebody who is doing something within multifamily. And, you know, for me in the beginning, like multifamily seemed a little bit scary, right? It was profit and loss statements and T12s and, you know, above the line, below the line, NOI, cap rates. I'm like, what are these guys talking about, Right. And it sounded like something that a private equity firm down on Wall Street would have to do, not something that a, a New York City firefighter ER nurse could could do. But the more I kept on kind of trying to get educated and reading books and listening to books and, and doing the podcast, I realized that other people are doing it. So why can't I? And I ended up getting a coach, you know, a mentor in the multifamily space. And, you know, I had some insane limiting beliefs around that as well, you know, um, because this was a paid mentorship. It wasn't like, mm -hmm. hey, I'll work for free and, uh, you know, <clears throat> learn the business from the ground up. 
um, you know, cause I wasn't sure what, like, what is my ROI going to be? And if I come out of pocket and I don't make any money, like, Oh, you know, like, so really kind of wrapping my head around coaching mentorship when I really had some crazy limiting beliefs was the thing that really moved the needle the most for me in my multifamily career. And, you know, not to sound like, you know, foo-foo or cliche or whatever, but like it literally collapsed decades into, into days because yep. not only was I able to learn the language of multifamily, to learn the business, to apply some of that knowledge. Like there's, there's so many people out there that are stuck on the one side of the fence because they're still accumulating knowledge. I need one more podcast. I need one more conference. I need one more seminar. I need one more book. And then they never do the application of that knowledge and they never move the needle. But when you are forced to because you paid money to a mentor or you, you know, are somehow, you know, bound to this, you know, goal, you take that action. And once I did that, the whole world opened up. <laughs> Isn't it amazing how accountability partner, especially a paid one, because you're the pain you get from that actually makes you accountable and actually makes you take action. And if it's for example, the same thing, if I offer you the same coaching for free, you wouldn't take the action. But if I made you pay for that coaching, you would take the action, even though the the content is exactly identical. That's it. I mean, how many I'm I'm guilty like anybody else of buying like the $97 course and then like never yeah. opening it or you know the $47 course like and then I'll never open it or I open it once and I'm like, "Ah, you know." But when you pay a significant amount of money, you're going to be or, or at least I am. I'm yeah. going to be invested in that in that outcome. Very true. And you noticed, as you mentioned too, when you actually work with a real coach who's helping you, guiding you and putting that accountability on you, you take so much action so much faster and you're maximize, minimizing the years it takes to do it now. And the, the hardest part is getting started. A lot of people, even Elon Musk says, the hardest part is being an entrepreneur is actually taking the action, executing. Stop having yeah. analysis paralysis and just keep reading the next book, the next book, the next podcast and never doing it. You learn on the fly. And it's like like um, people say, you're building an airplane while it's going down, right? You're building it while you're learning. And as you keep executing, you get so much better, so much faster. And you don't know what you don't know. And when you start figuring it out and asking the right questions and asking the who, you'll get it done so much easier. And especially for you too, like you're busy with being a lieutenant, being a nurse, being a, a dad, a family, having a wife, having three kids. Where's the time there to do this and the challenges of learning and actually actively doing the work too. And, you know, like you said, painting and fixing the housing uh, interior wise and going from there. It's tough, right? It is really tough, you know, and I'm not a really handy guy. Like my, if my wife was sitting right next to me, she'd be like, listen, I don't even let Tim, you know, hang pictures on the wall in our regular house. Like we will either have somebody else do it or I'll do it because I'm just not that handy, but <laughs> I needed to have, like, I wanted to have that education of being a landlord and doing this stuff myself, you know? Um, but then, you know, obviously we can dive into the multifamily aspect of mm -hmm. our business now, but there's so much out there. And I love what you said about, you know, building the airplane on the way down because we don't know, like as an entrepreneur, you know, I was, uh, listen, as a firefighter or an ER nurse, like, I just followed the roadmap, right? Somebody kind of always told you what to do or how to do it, or you follow some sort of menu of prescription of if this, and you do that, right? If someone's not breathing, you pump air into their lungs. If there's fire, you put the wet stuff on the hot stuff. Like there's always some kind of way to do something, but when you're an entrepreneur and there's nobody telling you what to do or where to, where to allocate your capital or where to spend your time, like it's really kind of tough, you know? And I really had to, figure out a system early on in our business. And my brother, who's my business partner, he lives down in Virginia, you know, I'm in New York. So uh, we're doing like a remote work type situation and, um, you know, figuring all that out. And you think you have to have it all figured out on day one, or at least I thought I did. Uh, what you find is that, you know, you, you take a little bit from this coach or a little bit from that mentor or a little bit from this colleague, and you kind of make your own business the way that it kind of needs to be. And it's amazing how things kind of fall into place. Uh, but then, you know, enjoying, enjoying the journey too. Like I think so many people, when they say, I want to be an entrepreneur, I want to get into real estate investing. They're looking for like that big payday or that big, you know, sit on the beach with a Mai Tai uh, and, you know, call it a day. Like, but really the joy in what I've had to do in the last, like say two years was really building the brand. 
and building the company and seeing what's possible and then one door leading to another door. So, I mean, that's been, that's been the best part of the, of the journey so far. Nice. Yeah. It's all about the journey. And I think I enjoy the fun. I enjoy the pain actually of learning everything I can learn out there and trying everything and trying to become the best at each particular one and then learning how to delegate it out to and teach that as well. I, I see in the, in the real estate space and entrepreneur space, there's not, there's a lot of coaches out there and there's not that much education. There's no one set way. Like if you look at a uh, fire department, for example, you guys have so many procedures Nurses have so many procedures. You know what to do in these all these different situations. But in real estate, there's no manual that says, here's how you become a, a billion dollars in syndications investing. There's no manual, direct manual. And we all take it at a different approach. And there's all these different types of products, you know, commercial, residential, real multi-units. There's different spaces. There's no one way to do it right. And no one has the magic, you know, to make it perfect. But it's fun because you're always learning every single time. Every property is not the same property, even if it, if it was the same builder it's different, right? You learn from it, but you get a good grasp on how to do it and how to scale that business. When you first bought the three unit building, did you guys do it yourself? Just you and your wife, your brother, or did you start having people join you to do that investment? Yeah. So I actually bought it with a, a friend of mine, <clears throat> excuse me, our, our mm -hmm. wives uh, were friends growing up in high school. So um, he had an interest in real estate. I had an interest in real estate. I was conservative. He was conservative. He didn't want to lose any money. I didn't want to lose any money. <laughs> you know, um, it was going to be his three, first three family, my first purchase in, you know, real estate. So, um, you know, a, a lot of our goals kind of aligned and I think I wanted to kind of de-risk, uh, going in, uh, all in by myself and say, all right, let me, let me do this with a partner. He was actually employed in the real estate space, you know, and kind of understood it. And, you know, so we kind of did it together. We did a, a learning process together. And then obviously. I got mute. Not exactly sure why that keeps on happening. <laughs> That's okay. So, um, you know, when, when we bought that place, uh, we got it, you know, November of 19, in obviously since then with the pandemic and everything else like the the home price obviously appreciation has been insane in the last two years so we just mm -hmm. called the, uh the realtor who's a good friend of ours and we just said hey Paige, like you know see what you can do with this property like you know because we're in a cash flow we were in a cash flow neighborhood we were not in an appreciation market so um we kind of had a number in our head and we're like yeah if we can get it you know cool well we weren't even on the market for one day and we already had you know an accepted um offer um, on the house. Like it was, it was insane. So, nice. and, you know, the reason why I did that too, was like, because, you know, realizing the power of going bigger and, you know, bigger properties, multifamily. And, you know, now that we have our own private equity firm, you know, I wanted to kind of de-risk and break away from the three family and not have to self-manage. Not that I had to self-manage as yes, I could have farmed mm -hmm. it out. Mm -hmm. But that capital could have been placed in the multifamily or self-storage space where I'm way more comfortable now. Um, and there's, you know, there's a risk premium associated with that. So um, so it was great while it lasted. I mean, we more than doubled our money in, in a two-year hold period in a, in a non-appreciation market. So, um, so, yeah, I mean, it was, a great, it was a great start to my real estate career. Okay. And let's talk about that too. Uh, what was the purchase price you guys bought it for? 276 276. Okay. And you're, when you bought it, what kind of cap rate were you looking at? So I wasn't even, um, that's a good question. I actually, no one even, no one's ever asked me that because, uh, you know, as a, as a residential, uh, property, the one to four mm -hmm. unit space, yeah, it's we different. were really looking, you know, at, at a different metric, you know, mm -hmm. um, as opposed to, as opposed to the commercial side. So, um, I mean, houses in that neighborhood, it was actually in a, a college town of New Haven, Connecticut, um, and houses in the three family houses in that neighborhood were kind of trading for three, uh, 300, 315, something like that. But this house, you know, needed some work. Um, so we ended up getting for 276, about 6,100 in taxes. And we ended up buying it with a LLC. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of, you know, people in bigger pockets or a lot of the forums or a lot of the articles out there will say, you know, how should you purchase, you know, your first rental property or any rental property? Should it be with an asset protection strategy of an LLC or should it be in your own name? And how many, how many loans can you get in your own name and all this good stuff? And, you know, if you do it on your, 
in your own name versus an LLC? What kind of financing can you qualify for? So there was a lot of, of stuff to kind of learn. And I think since we were both super conservative guys, we're like, oh, well, we have to use an LLC. I don't know that I would have went down that strategy again uh, if I had to do it all over again. Uh, but because we bought it with an LLC, we really kind of had to use commercial lending uh, to mm-hmm. purchase the property. So we ended up getting a um, a 10-year note on a 20-year amortization schedule. Um, and our initial rate, I think, was four or four and a quarter. And, you know, that was fine for the time. You know, that was a little bit more than, you know, what the residential mortgages were going for. But um, it still allowed us to cash flow really, really nice. So, um, you know, we ended up doing a quick clean deed <laughs> and refinancing uh, because mm-hmm. of the run-up in prices and, uh, then we, we didn't have any anticipation of selling the property at two years, but, um, we did a uh, quick claim and we got some conventional financing and it lowered our payment even more, uh, and went into that 30 year fixed mortgage product. So, um, I could have sat and held that pr- property for, you know, a long time, but, yeah. uh, like I said, it just made sense for us to kind of move on. Okay. So for example, if you're holding it for one, two years and then you're getting about 400 to a thousand net per month, that's pretty good. And you're building appreciation during the same two year period. After that, did you guys 1031 exchange it to another multi-unit? Uh, we didn't, um, <clears throat> you know, we, we tossed it around a little bit. Uh, but you know, I think we had our proof of concept that we both kind of needed. We were both kind of, kind of go our separate ways, not because there's any okay. kind of problem, but just because we yeah. want to go our different ways. So, um, we just took the cash and, um, you know, rolled it into, you know, different, different projects. Okay. So you pay the cash and roll different projects. And one thought about that, since I've been doing this for 16 years is that even then you could have 1031 exchanged it and then split it up the percentages, right. And then buy your own property and then go that route. You could have, um, you know, the, the problem is, you know, for, for me at least was that, Mm -hmm. you know, I could 1031 into a larger, uh, multifamily, but Mm -hmm. I would need a lot more equity than I had coming out of that project, you know? So, um, there was nothing that kind of fit the, the timing and, and what I was kind of working on. And I kind of wanted to have that control of, you know, I didn't want to outsource it again. I, I just wanted to have that control of, of the capital. So um, could I have probably done more homework on it? Probably. Um, but you know what? Um, I really viewed it as a win because it kind of gave me what I needed and it, it really got the ball rolling. So I was, I was okay with it, you know? Yeah. And that's always fine too. And that, that is a win because you got your first property, you got the proof of concept, you guys cash flowed, learned a lot in two years, you were actively managing the property. And after that property, you went to go on to uh, get into commercial space, bigger properties. And then tell me about that too. How, what did you buy afterwards? Yeah. So um, once we, uh, we, me and my brother, you know, got mm-hmm. into the multifamily space and got that mentor, um, we were invited into a 43 unit syndication in Pennsylvania uh, with my coach who basically, you know, gave me the opportunity of a lifetime to kind of get a behind the scenes look on how a syndication actually works. And, you know, what what does it take to do due diligence and the funding and the debt and all that stuff. So I'll be forever grateful to Chris for, for giving me that opportunity. And, um, you know, towards the end of that project, when it was time to do the webinar and stuff like that, he said, you know, Tim, do you want to, you want to try to raise some money for this deal? And I said, well, Chris, I'm like, I don't think I could raise any money for this deal, but thank you anyway, for the uh, opportunity to try to raise some money for the deal. And he goes, he's like, no, he goes, obviously you're missing the point. He goes, I want you to come out of your comfort zone. I want you to, you know, learn and see what it's like to try to, you know, raise capital for a deal. Like, you know, how do you talk mm-hmm. to investors and, so I said, all right, man, I said, you know, don't, don't count on me. You know, I still had insane limiting beliefs about raising other people's money for, for deals, even though I believed in the deal and I was going to invest in the deal. Um, so I ended up raising $150,000 for that first deal um, nice. with a, a Yahoo, uh, I forget if it was Yahoo or Gmail account, you know, individual emails to about, you know, 80 people. Um you know, not exactly the most uh, process-driven uh, strategy I've ever employed, but, um, you know, so we ended up raising a little bit of money. And I think that was another turning point in my career saying, you know what, like, this is really powerful to be able to leverage my coach, my my mentor, 
uh, to leverage his experience. And at the time he had done, I think six full cycle syndications, um, just had a really, really great process, like is a master underwriter and operator. And I just said, you know what, this is super powerful. So, um, with that, you know, the law, of the first deal kicked in and I very quickly partnered on 144 units in South Carolina. Um, and then very quickly after that, again, um, we did 148 units in Sarasota, Florida on a class A property. And for each of those properties, we were able to raise over a half a million bucks um, because now we had some momentum behind us and people started to see what we were doing, whether it was on social or I was a guest on a few podcasts and kind of just telling my story. And, you know, people started reaching out and emailing me and, you know, hey, you have a great story. You know, how do we connect or whatever? Um, and, you know, just little by little, the business started to kind of take shape. And, you know, Greg and I came to the end of 20, um, 2019, I'm sorry, 2020. And we said, you know, like, what are we going to do? Like now we have three projects under our belt. We've raised, I don't know, um, over a million dollars for three projects. Um, you know, we got this general partnership, you know, track record now and, um, are we going to maybe pick up our families and move to a sexy locale like uh, Austin, Texas or Florida or Phoenix? And the answer was emphatically no. You know, our, our wives would not have that. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, we weren't skilled underwriters. We weren't skilled asset managers at the time. Right. Um, we weren't going to be the boots on the ground. Um, I've already told you that I'm not handy. Right. So really, our kind of spot on the commercial real estate team was capital raising. Uh, the problem is, you know, you can't exactly just raise capital for deals. Uh, you have to have what's called a material participation in the general partnership. Um, and you certainly are not really allowed to speed date sponsors just to try to raise capital for them. So although we grew up right outside of New York City and we had a big, you know, kind of capital source uh, in our in our ecosystem, we had to figure out a way to leverage that, uh, you know, that that route of you know investing in real estate so what we did was you know by chance we just happened to meet up with a um a brand new broker dealer that was just kind of getting off the ground that was going to be focusing on private placement opportunities within multifamily and self-storage so we ended up um you know signing on with them and we had to take three exams the sie the series 82 exam for the series 82 license and then the same for the series 63 and it took us a couple months to kind of knock those out. And the benefit for that was that now we could just really focus on our one thing. One thing that we were good at is raising capital, talking to investors, connecting with people, you know, developing relationships. And now we could do that with the full force and bank backing of a, a broker dealer. Um, so we had an underwriting team. We had a due diligence team. We had a compliance team. We had a legal backing so that's really where Cityside Capital had that little hockey stick, you know, kind of growth that everybody talks about in the entrepreneurial world was because now we could partner like we, like for example, we partner with, you know, eight sponsors now, seven multifamily, one self-storage sponsor. Uh, and some of them are multi-billion dollar companies who have been doing this for a while. Um, and we're able to, you know, leverage their track record, their experience, uh, their asset management, you know, teams um, to bring vetted deals from these vetted operators to our investors. Nice. And that's a great way to do it too, especially in syndication world. There's so many different ways you can uh, raise capital, partner with other people, JV and BMGP side of things, and be able to work together to really get into really great projects that you find off market and put the deals together and mm -hmm. bring your investors on board with that and to utilize each other's skill sets, right? And when you have, you know, asset protection, when you have um, people who analyze deals, when you have rate people who are raising funds, it makes it more fun too, because now you're, the dynamic of working with a team is so much easier because you're using each other's skill sets to really focus on what you do best individually. And, mm -hmm. you know, like you guys are able to bring that capital to the table and be on a GP side of things and partner with people and especially operators who do thousands of units. They have the experience, the sponsorship level, the name recognition, and you know, their past history performance. It makes it so much easier to have that with your investors and over time, building that relationship with them and leveling up your own 
company, your own capital company, um, works really well. And I think that's fun part of it. And to be able to go to bigger deals rather than say, hey, a five to 15 unit, 20 unit, 50, 40 unit, you're going to hundreds of units. And that risk uh, factor is even better because you're de-risking your, your investment, uh, just being at bigger scale. So that's kind of nice to hear too, right? During the time you're raising this capital too, like what kind of challenges do you see when you start talking to your you know, clientele? Oh man, Matt, we could probably spend like about eight hours on this, like because um, <laughs> raising capital just isn't as easy as people like make it out to be. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of people will talk about, oh, if you find the deal, the money's gonna mm-hmm. follow. And I, I would, I would yeah. emphatically push back on that statement because, you know, people just don't throw money at good deals, right? There's nope. good deals all the time. You know, um, it's really relationship based, and there's really three things that you need to have in any secret sauce to raise capital, and that's you need your investors to have a, a relationship with you, and they need to know you, like you, and trust you. Because at the end of the day, a lot of these investors who are wealthy from, you know, maybe they own a business or they're a surgeon or they're, you know, they had a tech startup or whatever the case may be, their zone of their zone of focus and their zone of fire is not real estate, right? That's that's my job to present to them, um, you know. So they need to know me, like me, and trust me enough to come into a deal. Um, they wouldn't be able to on their own, you know, necessarily vet a sponsor, vet a market, vet a deal, you know, whatever. So, um, so really, I mean, that has been the challenge, right? So the challenge has been for me personally to really step into the identity of real estate investor, because for the longest time I was Tim, the firefighter, Tim, the ER nurse. I didn't view myself as Tim, the connector, Tim, the real estate investor, Tim, the capital raiser or anything like that, you know? So, I think I was really fighting myself for the first six months to a year, you know, and kind of limiting my own growth because I really wasn't, um, I felt like an imposter, you know, they talk about imposter syndrome, you know, and, you know, I think to a certain extent, I'm still constantly trying to, you know, let people know what I do and that I've made a pivot, you know, uh, yes, I'm still a firefighter, um, you know, but I, I also have built, you know, a multi-million dollar portfolio of, uh, you know, multifamily and self-storage. So it's really having the identity, the mindset, and it's establishing relationships, you know, with investors uh, because, you know, Listen, you you can listen to a marketing podcast or read marketing books. So you're blue in the face and they'll tell you that you need seven to 12 touches before somebody will make a a connection or a sale. You know, I would I would argue that, you know, some of those some of those stats just aren't applicable to to raising capital. You know, um, I spend a majority of my day just talking on Zoom calls with investors, telling them what you know, what markets we're focusing on, how the process works. Um, you know, what are some of our past deals have been like, what are the benefits of multifamily, you know, because once the best type of investor is one that is educated, right? You, I always talk to my investors uh, saying, look, I would much rather you hold off on your 50, 100, $200,000 investment until you're a hundred percent comfortable with this process, with how the asset class works, uh, because I really don't want them to build their parachute on the way down. I, you know, I want to be able to provide that, you know, avenue of education and clarity and confidence so that when they do say, Tim, you know, now I'm ready that they're, they're fully on board. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think in the real estate syndication space, it's all about the relationship and the trust and educating and finding the people who want to invest now and the people who are not ready yet to just continue educating them throughout. It can take a month, it can take a year or two years, but by providing constantly providing that value and re- being a resource for them in the investment space is actually great because one is you really focus on the relationship and building it throughout time. But what happens is when your audience gets bigger, your investor base gets bigger and bigger, you're building a really substantial network. And once those people, even like say 5%, 10% start investing with you, it really becomes a snowball effect over the years. So this compounding effect where they're going to start in seeing what the results and when they see that result they're going to tell all their other friends who already have heard about it because your network but at the same time now they see the results they're like wow i want to join into that too once that starts compounding you know like grand cardone for example it took him years to get to where he's at but in the beginning he, he was going quickly at it and the more time he put into it the faster it grew and it's about 
creating that audience to be aware of what you're doing because without it, it doesn't matter, right? No one knows who you're doing, what you're doing, who you are, and they can't trust you. Then you're really not raising anything, right? But to That's build crazy. it, it's a marketing perspective. It's an education-based perspective of providing value. Yeah. And, you know, just to stack on top of what you just said, like, I didn't realize getting into the real estate space or the capital raising space that marketing would play such a big role. You know, I wasn't Mm -hmm. a marketing major. I wasn't a marketing, you know, focused individual. I didn't have that business type background. But marketing, you know, uh, has been a huge part of our business, right? Telling people what we do, explaining the process. You know, how do we get that education in front of people, whether it's a podcast or YouTube or blog post or email marketing? Um, you know, I this was all a brand new thing for me. Um, and what I found was that I actually really liked that part of the business. I love talking to investors. I love creating that content. I love kind of you know, that whole space about connecting with people and hopping on phone calls, like, and that's all something that I never knew how to do. But now because of this business, I, I, that's what I do all day. Right. Um, and really, you know, that's the secret sauce to raising capital. It's doing all the little things, right. So when you do have an opportunity to talk to an investor who might be ready to invest in real estate, but they don't know what to do or, or, or who who to go with, you know, um, there's plenty of investors, you know, even large investors that I've actually helped, other people uh, kind of get connected with because maybe they want to do industrial and I don't do industrial, you know, or they, w- they want to do data centers or medical parks or something like that, you know, and I just, I don't have those opportunities for them, but I want to see them succeed. Right. So I'm able to be that connector. So um, it's just, you know, this whole journey has just been so eye opening and refreshing and um, you know, uh, purpose driven that I've, I've, I've really enjoyed it. Nice. And I, I get it because like I actually had my syndication company. I actually created a real estate fund about two years ago and built it out. And in the last two years, we already um, GP'd with other people and you know acquired over 558 units. And it's about $80 million now. But to, to watch that grow, to raise the capital, to work with clients, to build that trust and to see the track record growing. And once they see these results, their K1s, everything that's happening, the performance of it, they're like, wow that's great. You're doing that too. And like, like you, you know, we have other jobs, we have other things like I'm a real estate agent and a coach to all these agents, but to be in this space is becomes more fun because it's a next level of really investing and growing and to learn how to use, you know, other people's money to scale and leverage together to get something bigger, like a 250 unit and to grow that to 500 units. It gets amazing because the result of compounding of, for example, one vacant unit out of 100 is only 1%, right? And realistically, even if you had 10 vacant units, it's not bad at all because it's only a small percentage. And when you really know your numbers and you could say, I can scale each unit, raise it by 150, 200, 250, and then times that by 100, 200 units, that effect so quickly raises that valuation. It all becomes a numbers game. And then the next level of that is making a community, like turning those multi-units into a real community where every neighbor knows each other. They have fun. They have playgrounds, barbecues, parking lots, um, cityscape the place, right? And it makes it, you know, amazing that you're actually adding value into local communities. There's a whole impact to this type of investing that I think is overlooked. And I think you just Mm -hmm. did a a nice job kind of summarizing it is that, you know, at the end of the day, people want to make money. Yes. Mm -hmm. People want to be invested in real estate. Yes. Right. But once you can see the before and after pictures of some of these properties, and maybe if you could do it at real scale and get two or three of these buildings on the same block or the same little uh, neighborhood, you can totally see how a neighborhood can transform. Um, you know, and it's really, I mean, you're having an impact on hundreds, if not thousands of people's lives who are those tenants, right. Or people who are kind of invested heavily in in that neighborhood. So, um, yeah, that's an often overlooked piece of this puzzle, but that impact investing is, is something really that I'm finding like the millennial generation really, really enjoys. And they love to hear those stories. They love to see those pictures on the email updates, um, so the impact is is huge. Yeah, and I agree. And I like it too. And I started realizing that, hey, I'm not just investing and making money, but I'm actually 
changing the community, making it better. And, and I mean by like, for example, you're improving the buildings, you're changing it, cleaning it up, painting it, taking care of, of small mom and pops investors who had these properties, but wasn't perfectly managed or they had a you know, property manager who didn't manage it to the best of the ability. But when you take over and say, hey, I, re I renew 150 plus units or more, and I'm like, you know, remodeling each unit, making it nicer, I am changing the pricing, but I'm also asking first, you know, the tenants who live there, hey, do you want to move to this new unit that's been fully remodeled for you and your family? Great, you know, take mm -hmm. a look at that. And they do. And by converting that, you're actually giving them a better place to live and enjoy and, you know, turning these older rundown multi-units into something beautiful and then improving the community and making that better too. So that's a nice part Love of it. it. And adding the playgrounds, adding the swimming pools, the barbecue places and making it to, you can see the fun and the laughter and the, everyone growing up and now they want to stay there forever great yeah love that yeah that's love a way that. a great way to do that and improving the brand the quality right changing the lifestyle turning a c to a b minus or turning to a b is even better you improve the community so that's yeah, a, fun I mean, part of it. a lot of the uh, community engagement projects that some of our operators run like you know they'll like some of the little things are some of the things that mean the most to these tenants. Right. So like, you know, taking care of work orders on time or, you know, simply upgrading their lock to, you know, a electronic locking system with a key, with a key password, a key code password or something like that. Like, you know, replacing the refrigerator on time when it, when it breaks or even preemptive or being like, you know what, you paid rent uh, for 12 months straight on time. Here is, you know, an upgraded, you know, kitchen package or something like that. And you're really adding value to these people's lives because at the end of the day, yes, is an, yes, this is an investment, but you know what? Um, that's just a small piece of this puzzle. The bigger pieces on the other side of the people living and consuming that product. So, um, it's just like, you know, it's just another reason why I love kind of being in this space and having that type of uh, opportunity to, to make a difference. Exactly. And yeah, especially as a lieutenant and a firefighter, your, your personality type is like, I care. I want to help people. I want to save people's lives. I want to take action and do things that most people will never want to do ever. Right. Step in a line of fire. Right. That's, you know, scary for most of us, I would say. How do you stay positive with your mindset and like actually keep moving forward, especially when you're raising capital, a lot of investors are not ready yet. They don't know. They're not ready yet. They don't know if they trust you. They don't trust the process. They're not experts in real estate investing anyways. How do you, how do you stay positive and keep moving forward? You know, I think um, being grounded in a lot of the books that I read about successful people, entrepreneurship, small business, you know, all that kind of stuff um, has helped me to kind of keep putting one foot in front of the other because, you know, everybody sees Elon Musk and uh, Tesla and they're like, wow, that guy is, is he's a billionaire. He's got this great brand, you know, but, you know, he didn't get there overnight. You know, there was severe setbacks and, you know, companies that didn't make it before he ever started that company. Right. So, you know, knowing that and kind of hearing it reinforced on podcasts about success and stuff like that. It's given Greg and I some more clarity as to, you know what, this isn't always going to be rainbows and sunshine and butterflies. Like there are some setbacks, right? There's investors, some large investors who commit to a project and they pull out at the last minute or um, they don't fund on time or, you know, a project, you know, is delayed or whatever the, pro whatever the thing may be. Um, or, you know, you commit to raising X amount of dollars and you come up short because, you know, you don't have your systems in place. Like we, that was uh, early on in our business that that was like, we, we didn't know if we could raise a million or a uh, hundred bucks, right? Because we had no clarity into the needs and wants of our investor base and communicating with them and, and all that stuff. So, um, you know, knowing that Rome wasn't built in a day, um, but seeing, you know, what our goals are and reinforcing that and, you know, focusing on being 1% better every day and, and doing the things that we say we're going to do. I mean, it really kind of just snowballs into, uh, so now I can't wait to wake up and, and actually start, you know, sitting at my desk here and, and getting to work, you know? So let's talk, let's talk about the daily schedule and like how you get it to work. Like how much, how many people do you talk to a day and like how much can you raise in a day? Like, uh, you know, when you're talking to people and calling them, people are busy, people are working, people are working at home, people are going back to work now. And, you know, you're trying to help engage and, you know, provide value during these calls, but it's also hard because, you know, people apparently, oh yeah, I can, like right now it's during tax season. I want, let's talk about it after tax season. Oh, it's end of the year. Let's talk about it next year and let's, you know, look at it. 
how do you keep that momentum going and how do you engage with these uh, investors? Yeah, I mean, so um, again, it was a learning curve, right? Like, you know, so we have multiple like ins to our our funnel, kind of. I guess you could say, you know, be a you know lead magnet or a call to actions on our website for setting up a, an intro call. Um, I've been a guest on a ton of podcasts and now started my own podcast. So you know, by putting in the work, you know, over the last year and a half, two years of you know, being on podcasts and going to conferences and doing little virtual meetups and, you know, just meeting people that way, um, you know, little by little, you know, you start to wake up in the morning and you get calls uh, automatically on your Calendly, you know, uh, link. And I can wake up one morning and I can have, you know, zero phone calls or six, you know, or 10. Um, so it's all kind of, you know, um, different ways of meeting people and how they get into our ecosystem. Uh, but in the beginning, it was friends, family, college roommates, you know, cousins, neighbors, coworkers. Uh, what you find raising capital is that very quickly you tap those people out. Mm -hmm. You know, they're willing to give you a shot. They're willing to do fifty or a hundred thousand on a on a project or two. Uh, but then they want to see some results. They want to, you know, be in a holding pattern until maybe something goes full cycle, or maybe they just don't have any more capital to give you. You know, um, so. I think a lot of capital raisers or companies that are doing syndications run into that problem after their first one or two projects. So, you know, that's where the marketing piece comes in. Like, how do you, how do you tell people what it is that you're doing? How do you solve somebody else's problem? You know, and, and how do you tell that story to get in front of people? Because there's so many people that are vying for physician money, engineer money, tech money, you know, um, financial services money, you know, how do you how do you position yourself as the problem solver for their finances? You know, um, and that's really, you know, how do you tell your story? You know, and I think people resonate with my story and Greg's story uh, being regular folks. Firefighter, I think, gives me some credibility sometimes. Some people or an ER nurse, you know, uh, being in the trenches or being a dad, being a family guy like you know, just certain things I think have always, you know, been able to resonate with different people. And again, like hopping on a phone call, I don't expect people to invest with us on uh, after a 15 or a 20 minute phone call, like it's establishing that relationship and, you know, hopping on multiple calls after that. And, you know, maybe even meeting up with them for dinner or a cup of coffee or whatever. So, um, you know, we're still in the process, you know, we only have an investor list of maybe 400 plus at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, which after like two years, it really isn't that bad. Um, you know, but people are in, are in different stages of being ready to invest. And uh, some of them are highly uh, educated and uh, experienced real estate investors. Um, and others are just learning the process, you know, um, so. Yeah, I think that's part of it too, taking that massive action and really calling, talking to everyone you know out there, friends, family, colleagues, everyone in your life per time, and then building the relationships with all of them, educating them throughout time. And I think when you start creating more and more content in events, content, engagement, video, marketing, providing value, showing them the real estate life cycle, the investment opportunities, things that could happen and how it, the whole process works and providing the educational piece and showing your results over time creates that massive action and helps them see how it can fit into their lifestyle, how that investment can make sense for them. And financially, if it makes sense, they'll start trusting in with that relationship, want to invest more and more with you. And as that progresses, they'll let other other friends and family know too because if they're making really good money from that most likely they're going to tell everyone right the first time you're going to be really conservative take wait try it go full cycle and then see the result and then go okay this works i'm going to do more and more and then if that period they're making more money with you versus something else like stocks or any other opportunity out there they're going to say okay i'm going to put more on this way and over time that snowball effect really takes action but the process as a syndicator takes so much effort, so much massive action, so much time to become a marketing expert, to provide that educational piece and to wait. That waiting game is hard because, of course, as a syndicator, we want the money now to go invest now because we see a lot of great opportunities now, but we understand it takes time for everyone to feel the same to invest with us at that period, right? You know, and that's it. That's probably my biggest pain point is that I wish mm -hmm. I could just, you know, brain dump my knowledge into yep. other people, right? And be like... Yeah. 
you know, I don't understand how you don't understand, right? Like, because, you know, um, the problem is, you know, we've been, you know, we grew up in a, in a society that valued, you know, saving and going to school, getting a good job, maxing out 401ks and accumulating money in your retirement accounts and buying that house, right? And saving money in a bank. Like, that's what our parents taught us because that's what worked for them 30, 40, 50 years ago or our grandparents even, you know, and it's kind of that, that paradigm has shifted. And I think anytime a, a, a large paradigm shift occurs in society, it takes a long time for everybody to kind of make that shift. Right. So, um, and especially with commercial real estate, just understanding about forced appreciation and tax benefits and, you know, capturing, you know, loss to lease, you know, and, and really driving that operating income as the prime, you know, um, value creation, you know, uh, model for how, how do we make money in, in commercial real estate? You know, people are stuck with the current news cycle too. Like, oh, well, I heard that appreciation for houses is at an all time high. So it has to be a correction soon or, you know, um, interest rates are going up, you know, oh my God, like, you know, real estate has to be risky. Right. I mean, that sounds really, really risky right now. And, you know, while there's risk in all investments as a disclosure, right. I mean, if you are align yourself with the who and not the how, right? If you if you really align yourself with the experts in that space and know that their track record speaks for itself and that, you know, these are assets that, you know, institutional money or international money, they're all piling into, right? Commercial real estate, industrial, retail, multifamily, even some of the more risky assets right now, like the hotels, right? And the hospitality, you know, they, they took a beating during COVID. Well, guess what? That's when people buy, right? You always heard people mm -hmm. buy when there's blood in the streets. Um, so, you know, now knowing what I know, I'm so passionate about figuring out how to kind of do that and brain dump it out to my, uh, my audience and my ecosystem, because I think without the with the risk of sounding salesy or sleazy, like, you know, real estate is a tried and true asset class, you know, and if you buy it right, manage it right and finance it right, just like my mentor taught me how to do, like there's opportunity out there. And are you going to hit a grand slam home run every single time? Probably not, you know, um, but if you can cash flow from day one, if you can buy a right good asset, you can run it correctly and you can put the proper debt on the property. There's really, um, you know, uh, not a lot of ways you can lose, you know, in, in a big way. Yeah. And I think, yeah, it's, it just comes down to educating everyone about that. Because, for example, you know, like in our lifetime, we, yeah, from our parents and everything, we didn't learn all this stuff about real estate investing in, in schools. You don't, they don't really teach you this. And even like high school and college, are they really teaching you the business side of real estate investing and building financials? No, I think, I think we need more financial literacy. And that's where nowadays with that paradigm shift, we're actually a lot of syndicators are trying to create this content for them to educate them in a different way. Yeah. In general, before when you're, even when you're a kid, Oh yeah, there's stock markets, things go up and down. You can buy and make a lot of money, but they don't tell you about all the risks behind it. They don't tell you what you don't know. And we're not experts in all, the, all these companies, what's happening, but in real estate is tried and true. It's been for hundreds of years, people buy and even investment institutional investors, they invest heavily in real estate. So we know that's great. And, we see that dollar amount, but it's not educating the normal people about doing the same for themselves. So now Correct. as syndicators, investors, we got to educate them and say, Hey, here's the, all the reasons why we see it this way and take a look at it for yourself and take your own judgment about how these different vehicles can help your family build up your wealth. I love that. Yeah. And that's hard. And people don't realize that, Hey, I do really well stocks. Well, did you take into all these facts of short-term, long-term capital gains? Uh, where's all the other parts of it? And then how are you scaling that? And where's the residuals on it and the dividends on it and everything else? What's the numbers after the fact? Well, I didn't calculate that. I just saw it. I made some money, but what's the tax benefits on that? Nothing. Okay. How's that compare? Right. And they go, Oh, I don't know, but it's easy. I, I have free cash flow. I can just put it in anywhere I want today and I can take it out tomorrow. Like, well, you take it out with the cost, right? And then, well, yeah, I mean, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, that goes right back to the education piece, right? Like Rich Dad, yep. Poor Dad kind of opened opened my mind up. But then the cash flow quadrant, which is the next book in that series, it really opens your mind up onto the tactics of what Rich Dad, Poor Dad talked about, right? And then once I read that book, it was, you know, let me go read a book on taxes, right? So I read Tax-Free mm -hmm. Wealth by Tom Wheelwright and, you know, other books like that. And I'm like, wait a minute, like... um, there's all this information that I didn't know about. And like, you know, our biggest, 
you know, by and large, regular Joes, W-2 workers, 1099 workers, gig workers, our biggest expense every year is taxes, but we don't view it as such, right? So yeah. you know, right around now, you're going to see a lot of memes or, or things on social media. Hey, guess what? From January 1st till today, you just worked to pay your tax bill. Like, <laughs> yeah. isn't that insane? Like, you know, it it's is insane. the first three months of your year paying for your taxes. Like, that's insane. So, but if you learn ways to minimize that or to use the tax code to its advantage, you know, it, it's a roadmap to, to, to wealth, right? I have not read one page of the IRS tax code, right? But my, I pay somebody who's very knowledgeable who doesn't know how to do that. And that's my who and not how, right? So, um, yeah, I mean, I, that's obviously no. a touchy subject for me, I guess, on huh? taxes. <laughs> no, I think it's a great subject. I wish colleges and high schools would actually teach you these books. They should have these books as courses in life, in schools, talking about like Rich Dad, Poor Dad, the books, uh, Cash Flow Quadrant, Tax-Free Wall. They should have that in schools, educating about different opportunities rather than the opportunity is get a job, work for your lifetime, take your 401k, retire, and have Social Security. That's not the, That shouldn't be the norm, you know? No. So that's where we come into play. We all have to help each other really you know, educate, provide value, and let people make their own decisions. But at the same time, educate them on these different things you can look at. And even like tax attorneys I talk to, like CPAs are great, but they don't know taxes as a, as a legal a way to save and asset protections. That's the next mm -hmm. level thing people need to understand. And that's where we're all constantly learning about it. So that's another fun opportunity to educate ourselves on it. Yeah. I mean, just a sack on top of what you just said, right? I mean, it, I always say like, if you broke your ankle, you wouldn't go see a neurosurgeon, right? Because, you know, they're both doctors, they're both MDs maybe. Um, but the neurosurgeon is not going to have to take care of your broken ankle. Uh, you know, so same thing with CPAs, you know, you can't go to a general CPA or a CPA that is focused on auditing a, a company. Like you have to go find a real estate focused CPA that knows the rules, knows the regs, knows the documentation required to maximize your tax savings, right? And then build you out a blueprint for a one, three, five year, you know, roadmap of how you're going to take these real estate losses and apply them to your, to your, you know, individual situation. So um, highly recommend getting around the right people, um, you know, th that are doing the thing that you want to be able to maximize. Good. And what are some other things you would recommend for people right now to really try to kick out 2022 and get executing? You know, I think, um, you know, one of my mentors, my de facto mentors is a guy named Keith Weinhold, who has a podcast called Get Rich Education. Um, and I, I've been listening to him for two years, probably listened to every single one of his episodes. And he talks about the return on your home equity being zero. And I think a lot of people feel very safe when they have a lot of home equity, or it appears that they have a lot of home equity built up. And you know, I would argue that, you know, we don't live in a capitalist society. We live in a creditist society. And, you know, you have to learn how to use leverage in smart and tactical ways. So um, I can only talk about what I did. But, you know, if you have leverage, if you have, um, you know, if you have equity built up in your house, maybe figure out a way or a strategy that you can use that to invest in other cash flowing assets so that you can have that velocity of money. Uh, that's one thing. Another thing is people just don't realize that they can use old 401ks or 403s or um, and, you know, create a, uh, a solo 401k or a self-directed IRA and use that for you know, not just stocks and bonds and ETFs, but they can use it for real estate. They can use it for, you know, fix and flips, private money lending. You know, there's so many opportunities um, to use your own capital that you didn't think were possible, uh, but they're out there. So um, those are just two of the things. And then just, you know, get around people that are doing the thing that you want to do. I mean, there's a great quote out there. You are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. I'm always trying to be the dumbest person in the, in the room uh, because, um, I think there's real value in surrounding yourself and building a tribe and, and realizing that you don't have to do this by yourself. You know, there's plenty of groups out there. Um, you know, you can create your own or jo go join one um, because there's a lot of people who are moving away from the traditional um, roadmap of how to save and create wealth. And they're kind of going down a different path. Yeah, exactly. And I think one last quote too is your, um, your network is in your net worth, right? Your net worth mm -hmm. is in your network. So you really, 
working with those people and being surrounded by people like us who are like pushing each other. Even I always want to be the dumbest one in the room because I want to constantly learn how to grow and how to get to the next level. And being surrounded by people who execute every day and push you and motivate you, encourage you, don't put you down helps a lot too, because when you see them going so quickly, you want to go quickly too. And like, how do you do this? If you're a Lieutenant, you're a nurse and you're building capital and raising and you have three kids and you're doing it versus someone who's just sitting here watching TV all day, watching Netflix and just relaxing and not taking action. They want to be right. surrounded by people like you, right? Who are actually motivated to do this. And they're like, if you can do it, I should be able to learn how to do that too. Even at 10%, that would be really great. Exactly. How do people reach out to you? And also one last thing, what's your mm-hmm. goal for 2022? Um, so it was to get my brother to go full-time in city side capital, but he just made a, a career pivot. So that's not going to happen. So, um, it's really centered around raising capital and some of our goals for that, you know, at least $10 million raised. Um, we're probably on, we're on pace and Q1 to exceed that already. So, uh, maybe we're not thinking big enough, but, um, I really want to get our podcast, you know, really rocking and rolling our YouTube channel, you know, we just kind of started these things uh, three months ago and um, raising capital and just really kind of connecting with more like-minded folks like yourself. Cool. Great. And how do people reach out to you? Yeah, you can hit our website, citysidecap.com or check us out on our new podcast. It's called the Passive Income Brothers. It's on, you know, all the major platforms and uh, YouTube, same thing. Just search Cityside Capital and uh, subscribe and, and check out our content. Cool. All right, guys. Thank you guys so much for being here on the Truth About Real Estate podcast. We'll see you guys in the next one. Have a great day. Take care now.